I'd like to uh, again say uh, welcome to all our visitors, family, and friends that have come to uh, spend this Christmas Eve morning with us. Uh, we, it's our heart's desire that uh, we would be a great encouragement to you, a great blessing this morning to all of you as we lift high the name of Jesus Christ. And uh, we have been in a series that I started last week, a three-part series that I've entitled The Gift. And it's been my desire in this series to take a time-honored tradition within many of our homes, the giving of gifts and the opening of gifts, and to use it for a, a picture of a spiritual thing that has taken place in the story of Christmas. Last week we talked about the first of three aspects of uh, this gift, and we talked about waiting for the gift, and I talked about how we as children, when we were young, we would wait for that day that would come that would be able to open the gifts, and even with a uh, four-year-old in our home right now, he keeps asking, when are we going to open the gifts under the tree? I'll tell you, I was ready to return one. My in-laws, God bless them, they bought uh, Noah a B-I-K-E, I'm not going to tell you what it is, he can't spell, and I don't know where he's at right now. But a B-I-K-E, and uh, the worst words that any man can ever see are some assembly required. And we were up until uh, the late hours of the night putting that God-forsaken piece of equipment together, and it's ready to go for him, and uh, he's going to love it. But we talk about how children wait for this gift, and last week we talked about Simeon and Anna waiting on the gift of Jesus Christ. And today I want to talk about unwrapping the gift. In 24 hours or so, you'll be around the family Christmas tree and you'll be involved in this flurry of activity that we call unwrapping of the gifts. And we're going to look at that this morning. And then tonight, if you are able to come back, we would welcome you at six o'clock to come where we're going to talk about celebrating the gift. Once we've opened the gift, we celebrate the gifts that we receive. And I want to talk about how we celebrate this gift of Christmas. You know, it's my desire now to unwrap this gift. And as I was looking on how to create an environment within that, I found a cute story that I would like to share with you. It told us about a little boy who drew a manger scene in his Sunday school class. And when he was done, he showed the teacher what he had drawn. There was Mary and Joseph, the little baby, the angels and the shepherds, the wise men. He had everything in just the right place. And then to the side of the manger, there was this little chubby little boy sitting there. And the Sunday school teacher said, well, okay, son, what, what is that about? Who is that chubby boy? She said, well, teacher, isn't that round John Virgin? Some of you got that. If you haven't, open your hymnals to the hymn, uh, Christmas Carol, Silent Night, you'll figure out what that means. But you know, just like that little boy, we here, even in our own culture today, find ourselves with a misperception about what Christmas is all about. That little boy had messed up the words of Silent Night, yet we mess up the season of Christmas. We find ourselves with the influence of Christmas being rapidly diluted in our culture. Institutions and holidays that once were sacred are now just... Um, just customary things we do that have lost all religious significance. In fact, the average person on the street would not know the reason we celebrate Christmas. And sadly, even those that attend church that hear the story of Christmas, that know the true meaning of Christmas, have forgotten about it. Why? Because they're involved in a flurry of shopping, of eating cookies, of going to parties, and listening to music, but forgetting the real reason for this season. It is because of that that I want to unwrap 
Christmas this morning. I want to do it by not looking at a text that you normally would look at during Christmas. I want to look to the passage in Galatians chapter 4. If you want to open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4. You see, when we begin to unwrap Christmas, we find ourselves not looking at all the same stories that we've heard in Christmas We all know the story of Mary and Joseph. We all know the story of Gabriel coming and talking to Mary about a special birth. Last week we talked about Simeon and Anna. We've heard of the shepherds and the wise men, the manger and the innkeeper, the little town of Bethlehem. All of those we know. But do we know the real reason for Christmas? Do we know the real meaning and the real significance behind that? You see, all of that is wrapping around the great gift of Jesus Christ. And it is time for us to commemorate the real reason for Christmas. But why is it that we get involved when we give gifts? Why is it that we wrap them? As I began to think about it, I said, what is the significance of wrapping? If the little town of Bethlehem and the shepherds and the wise men are all wrappings around this gift of Christmas, what is the significance of wrapping those Christmas gifts under the tree? And I began to think about that for a couple moments, and I know even in my own life that we spend money and we spend many hours uh, wrapping these gifts. In fact, I saw a study that was done from the United Kingdom in 1995 about the subject of Christmas wrapping paper, and the results will astonish you. They said in 1995, 11,000 tons of wrapping paper was sold in the United Kingdom. 75% of that was used at Christmas time. To put that in perspective, on average it takes six mature trees to make one ton of wrapping paper. They had come to the conclusion, therefore, 49,555 trees were needed to make the 8,250 tons of wrapping paper used that Christmas alone. Waste Management tells us on their website that they will process more than 25% more garbage with 10% of that being packaging or wrapping paper. With most of that, be, uh, of that being wrapping paper, why is it that we wrap our Christmas gifts? It seems if you're like me, we'll spend hours wrapping up this box and putting a bow on it and everything just for the individual who gets the gift to take it, not even look at the paper or the wrapping and how well it's done, and rip it apart in five seconds. Just for that paper to be wadded up, thrown into a fireplace, thrown into a garbage can. Why is it that we wrap our Christmas gifts. Well, I didn't even look to that, but I began to think in my own mind that maybe it's because we want to create a mystery to the gift that we're giving. Maybe it is that we will create some excitement for that individual with great expectancy to desire to open up that gift. Or maybe it's when they open up that gift, the exhilaration that comes when they see what they've received. I'm not sure where the tradition of wrapping up gifts came from, but I know that it's something a part of our tradition. And as I began to look at that and understand what it means to unwrap that, I want to, in the next couple moments, unwrap the reason for Christmas. So look to your Bibles, to Galatians chapter 4. And we're going to see some truths that come from that as the Apostle Paul unwraps the reason why Jesus came to this world and the celebration we have in Bethlehem. Listen to what it says in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. It says, but when the time had fully come, God sent his son born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law that we might receive the full rights of sons. 
Because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts. The Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. I want to stop there for a moment and pull some truths from this text. There are three truths that we need to learn from Galatians chapter 4. The first truth we must understand is by unwrapping the gift of Christmas, we unlock the mystery. We unlock the mystery behind the arrival of God's Son. We unlock the mystery behind the arrival of God's Son. As I said before, there is great mystery on why we do many of the things that we do around Christmas. But even more than that, there's great mystery in re regarding that first Christmas. Now when we look at that first Christmas and the celebration that took place in Bethlehem, we have to ask the question, why is it that we celebrate a holiday? Why is it we sell Christmas, celebrate Christmas for a child who was born 2,000 years ago? There have been billions of children who have been born on all kinds of days and great amounts of significance and others without anybody knowing about it except for maybe the mother and the father. And yet 2,000 years ago, this boy named Jesus was born in an obscure town called Bethlehem and we come together and we celebrate it. We spend a whole month of our 12-month calendar spending time focusing on this birth. Why is that? What is it about this child that makes him so special? The answer is found in Galatians 4. It is in this passage that we see that Jesus was sent and he was God's son. And he came for three key functions. He came to fulfill three key things. First of all, we see that Jesus came to fulfill God's plan. He came to fulfill God's plan. Look at verse 4 again in your text. This is what it says. But when the time had fully come, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under law. Let's stop there for a moment. Look at that first phrase that Paul gives. When the time had fully come. The phrase signifies that this was a part of the grand scheme of God's plan. That it was not just something that, that just kind of was a bleep on the radar screen of God. And it didn't happen by accident. But what he's saying is, is there was a plan. When the plan had fully come to fruition, God sent his son. Now Paul in the original Greek, we learn that he was giving a word picture. The word picture that Paul is trying to give is that of an hourglass. And what Paul is saying is, is as the sands of the hourglass left the top part of the glass and fell to the bottom, Jesus Christ was sent. Now think about that for a moment. Think about that hourglass. And here God the Father is waiting and as he's doing that, he is putting everything into place as it goes. We know that the story of Bethlehem being the place where Jesus would be born would be prophesied years before by the prophet Micah. And we know that as a result of that, God had everything planned. We know that Caesar Augustus issued a decree in Luke chapter 2, sending Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem to fulfill what the prophets had foretold about. We see that this is a plan of God. Now it says that he sent his son. We need to understand that what that is telling us is, is that Jesus' beginning did not begin there in Bethlehem. Jesus' earthly life started in Bethlehem. But Jesus before the foundations of the earth was with God the Father in the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, John 1, 1 tells us. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. And in John 1.14 4, we hear that the Word became flesh. 
and made his dwelling among us. And Bethlehem, Jesus became flesh and began to dwell with you and I here on earth. It was a part of God's supreme plan. We see that the phrase, when time had fully come, is a time that was predetermined by God. But how was it predetermined by God? And why was that time in first century Palestine the right time and the right place for Jesus to be born? I want you to write this in your outline. There are three reasons why it was the right time. First of all, it was the right time religiously. It was the right time religiously. Just write that somewhere on the side of your page there. We need to understand the religious culture at that time. We know that from history, the Jews were free from idolatry. All throughout the first part of the Old Testament, the Jews had fallen in love with other gods. And we found ourselves, every time we look to the Scriptures, finding the Jewish people, the Israelites, pursuing other gods than Jehovah God. And as a result of that, there's times of captivity. There's times of great trial and judgment in the life of Israel as a nation. But here at this time, we see that the Israelites are now moving away from the idolatrous relationships they had with, God, with other gods and began to pursue the Messiah. History tells us in the Jewish culture where we read from the great rabbis and the great high priests during that time that we know that at that point about... 200, 300 years before Christ, there began to be created an excitement about Messiah coming to, to save them. We see that it didn't just involve just their uh, freedom from idolatry, but we know that at that time the Old Testament was completed. We know that Ezra and the scribes had fulfilled the writings of the Old Testament. As a result of that, there were schools that were created to nuance what the Old Testament had to say. People were getting excited about what the prophets were talking about. Next, we see that it just didn't involve the right time religiously, but also culturally. Write that down. It was the right time culturally. In that time, in that hour where Jesus was born, in that age that had taken place, we know that the words that were being spoken were a common language. We know at that time Greek had become so uh, such the... Um, one language that was being spoken that everybody began to first and for the first time in all of culture began to understand one another we know that because of the exploits of Alexander the Great that everyone was beginning to learn Greek now this word this uh, Greek language was very descriptive and it was able to articulate many of the deep truths that God would have and that he would use through his son but not only that but it was religiously the right time culturally the right time but also politically it was politically the right time. We know that the Roman Empire was the dominant power in that day. And the Romans had some great in innovation when it came to government. We see three aspects of the Roman system that helped Jesus come, or allowed Jesus to come at the right time to be able to have his message shared. First of all, we see uh, the first thing that's called the Pax Romana, which means the Roman peace. We know for the first time in Earth's history, there was a peace that seemed to go over the whole world. The Roman Empire was under pretty much one government, Rome, and as a result of that, everyone kind of fell lock, stock, and barrel into that Roman peace. As a result of that, it allowed for the early missionaries and the apostles and the preachers to proclaim Jesus Christ and to be able to share the good news. There was a second thing that we see, and that was the Lex Romana. The Lex Romana, and that's the Roman law. And the Roman law allowed citizens living in the empire to have many rights, which also gave the rights for people to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Remember, Jesus didn't break the Roman law. Jesus broke the law of the chief priests that they had created, that he was blaspheming God. Rome didn't have an issue with what Jesus was saying. It was the chief priests and those of his own people in the Israelite nation. We see finally that it also involved the Rio Romana. Rio Romana, which is the Roman roads. We know that even today there are roads that were built back in the time of Jesus that were used as commerce, but also as an opportunity to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. For the first time in the culture of the world, we know that people were able to travel freely from one nation to another. All of that are factors. All of those were factors that God said, it is the perfect time for my son to be sent. And within God's perfect plan. The story of Christmas, we must understand, is a story of God's faithfulness to us, His people. Way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, it tells us that someone would come, that the Messiah would come and would reverse the issue of sin that was started and created in the fall back in Eden. But next we see, not only did it involve God's plan, but it also fulfilled God's passion. When Christ came, He came to fulfill God's passion. What was this little baby in this little manger to do? I've got a one-year-old, a little guy that was born just before last Christmas. And if you think about it, as shepherds came and as wise men came, what would this little baby do? There's nothing more innocent than a baby. There's nothing uh, as simple as a baby. A baby can't do anything, but what was this baby going to do? Well, we know that this baby was coming to fulfill the passion of God. Look at what it says at the beginning of verse 5. It says that his job was to redeem. To redeem. The Greek word redeem is the word ex agarazo. Ex agarazo. And it has a compound meaning to it in the Greek. The first thing he says is that Jesus came. He came to redeem. Now what does that mean? In the Greek there's two meanings to it. The first meaning is, is that this word was used in the ancient times during slave auctions. And what this word exegorazo means is that what would happen is, is a master would come and he would go and he would buy himself a slave. But there's a compound word in the word that Paul uses. There's another element to it. And it's not just one master coming and buying from another master a slave. But the other part of this great word is, is that what happens is, is that master who comes and buys from one slave master and takes him as his own, releases him for freedom for the rest of his life. That's the word that Paul uses, and it's perfect. Because what Jesus Christ came to do was to release us from the bondage of sin from our slave master, the devil. And he didn't say, all right, you're going to go from being the slave of the devil now to being my slave. We're going to learn later on what he does. But in fact, what he does is he gives us not a life of now slavery, but a life of freedom. And Paul says that is why Jesus Christ came to Bethlehem. He came to redeem, to take us from the master that we have because of our sin. We've fallen into the bondage of the devil. And as a result of that, we find ourselves unable to remedy ourselves from that slavery. But Jesus Christ came that he would buy us. It says we're bought with a price. He would redeem us. He would rescue us from that sin. And as a result of that, give us freedom. Well, we see one other element to that. And that other element is, is that Jesus came to fulfill the passion of God or God's passion. What was it that drove God to send His Son? 
What was it about earth at that moment? What was it about us as humans? The psalmist says, who is man that you are mindful of him? What was it that drove God the Father to send his Son? Look at the verse again. It says that he sent his Son, first of all, to be born of a woman. And it says, under the law. This idea is the picture of telling us that Jesus Christ isn't just 100% God, but that he came to be 100% man. He came for a purpose and a passion. The reason Jesus put flesh on in Bethlehem and walked this earth for 33 years was that he came to redeem us under the law. And I've already told you that because of our law-breaking that we have done, we are in bondage to sin. But as a result of that, God says, I send my son not just so that I can free them to be my slaves, but look at what it says later in that verse. He did it that we might be his children. He did it that we might be his children. God is the Father. God the Father sent his son. So what? So that he could begin a relationship with the children of the world and begin to have a relationship with all those who would trust Christ as their Savior. He did this by sending his son to rescue us from our sin. But just like Paul Harvey, when you look to the story of Christmas, you always have to look at the rest of the story. So let's look at our second point this morning. Because once we understand how Jesus Christ has fulfilled these things as coming in Bethlehem, we see that the second thing we learn as we unwrap this gift of Christmas is that we can become united with God by means of Christ's atonement. We can become united with God by means of uh, of Christ's atonement. That word atonement, if you're unaware of what that means, literally is to pay for something. If you atone for, if Jesus atoned for my sins in our English vernacular, that would mean he paid for my sins. So how do we begin to understand this united? Well, we go back to that word redeemed. Jesus is, uh, we, we are told that Jesus came that he might be in other parts of the Bible, Emmanuel. We sang about that. God with us. What he came to do was redeem, and in that redemption we see an atonement taking place, a payment for sin. But what does that atonement involve? First of all, there are three things we need to look at in that. First of all, we see that this atonement is of a personal nature. This atonement is of a personal nature. Look at our text again. I want to read it. And I want you to identify who Paul is talking to. It says, but when the time had fully come, God sent his son born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. Verse 7 says, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. You know, as I look at that, I see uh, in four short verses, six references to us as people. Four times Paul uses the word you. He says it's about you. This atonement, this redemptive story wasn't just, okay, Christ comes and he says, all right, I guess I'll go down and just try to save the whole lot of them. Let's just go do that. We'll just go save all of them and be done. No, it is very specific. It is not some generic redemption that took place. It is specific. It was done for you. 
The reason why Jesus Christ came was He came for you. The story of Christmas is about Jesus Christ coming for you and for me. Jesus Christ came to this world for you. He came to teach you. He came to heal you. He came to rescue you. He came to help you. And He came to die on the cross for you. Not your neighbor, not your friend. It is about you. Jesus Christ came for you. Isn't that a great story? Isn't that a great message of Christmas? That Jesus Christ didn't just come for just anyone, but he came with you in mind. That's why he came. I'm so glad that God sent his son to redeem Timbadal. I'm so glad that God sent his son to redeem me from being enslaved to my sin. I'm so glad God came to save me from all the things that keep me from God the Father. When you unwrap the gift of Christ's atoning death on the cross, you begin to unwrap the message of Christmas. That the message of Christmas is about Christ coming and dying so that all who trust in Him, who receive Him, John 1 says, will receive eternal life and who will also be called children of God. That is why Jesus came. But we know that this coming came at a great price. This redemptive story, this atonement came at a great price. This rescuer redeeming would not be easy. It would mean a couple things. First of all, we know from the story of Christmas that Jesus Christ would leave every privilege in heaven. Think about that for a moment. You think it's tough for you to leave your home to go to your in-laws the rest of the day? That's nothing. And my in-laws aren't here today, so I can say I love my in-laws. Okay, that's nothing. You think it's difficult to be able to think about Jesus leaving all the perfection in heaven. He was being worshipped 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Myriads of angels loved him and worshipped him. So what did he do? He came as a baby in Bethlehem. So what? So we could sit there and say, what's so big about him? What's so big about Jesus? There's nothing any special about you. In fact, one of the people said, one of the disciples that... Jesus was going to have come follow him. says, there's nothing good that comes from Nazareth. Even Jesus, even, he couldn't even find a break. But we know it even got worse than that. He was spat upon. He was mocked. He was scourged. He was put on a cross. We know that Jesus did not have it easy. But he came, even though it wouldn't be easy, to die on our behalf. We know that he would go to the cross. This baby that was born in a manger of wood filled with straw that one day at 33 years of age he would die on a cross made of wood. That's the message of Christmas. You cannot extrapolate the meaning of Christmas and the story of Christmas without the meaning of Easter and Good Friday. You can't pull those two apart. Our world wants to do it, but the baby that was born so innocent and so pure is the one that died as the pure and sinless lamb on the cross of Calvary. That is the message of Christmas. But next we see that not only did that happen and that it cost a great amount, but it also was powerful in its results. It was powerful in its results. Look at what it says in our text, that we might receive the full rights of sons. Now I will tell you that if I had decided today that it would be good for us to... Uh, maybe stabilize that cross a little more to hold my weight. And I say, you know what? I want you guys to crucify me today. I'm a good guy. I don't do many things bad. I'm a good father. I'm a good husband. I think I do a good job of helping pastor the church. Go ahead and crucify me. Well, I'll tell you that will get some people excited. And people will say, well, it's sad that a good man had to die so young. But it's going to do little for you in your spiritual walk. 
But what it did when Jesus died on that cross, when that baby of Bethlehem went to the cross of Calvary, we know it was powerful in its results. It took the blind and allowed them to see. It took the lame and made them walk. But even more than that, it allowed the people that were in spiritual darkness, you and I, to come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And you know what it did? It took us from being slaves. Look at what it says. And it gave us the full rights as sons. You want to know the gift of Christmas? The gift of Christmas is that Jesus has taken you out of slavery and he has made you his son. That is the gift that Jesus gives us at Christmas. The wonderful thing is, is that though Jesus died on the cross, he did not stay in the grave, but he rose from the dead and in doing so gave us life giving and resurrection power for all those who will believe. Again, John 1.12 says, To all who have received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Well, what does that mean to be a child of God? I want to explore that in my last point. Because when we unwrap this gift of Christmas, we are able to understand the marvel of our adoption. There is something marvelous, there's something wonderful that takes place when we trust Christ as our Savior. Maybe you're here this morning, you're saying, Hey, Tim, you're making a lot more of Christmas than it should be. It's about family, it's about gifts, it's about Santa, it's about uh, you know the sales that are going to happen at the department stores tonight when I go. I would say all of those are periphery issues. I don't have any problem, as I told you last week, about celebrating some of the customary things that we do. My problem is, is that when we elevate those things over Jesus Christ, we have blasphemed the name of Christ. And we've missed out on what the true meaning of Christmas is all about. So how are we to understand this marvel of our adoption? Look at verse 6 and 7. Paul says, you are sons. And because you're sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. When Christ came to Bethlehem that first Christmas morning, He came to a world of darkness. He came to a world of pain, to a world of suffering, to a world full of sin. But He came as the light. He came, excuse me, as the truth. He came as the way to God. And He broke through that darkness, and He broke through that, and today He can do the same thing. Just as that star beamed light so that people would be able to find Jesus, the Word of God is now beaming a light to all of those who live in darkness. There are some here today who live in the darkness of their self-reliance, the darkness of their religious thinking. They're darkened by their selfish pride. And the sad thing is, is this, you're not the only one. All of us are. At one point, I, just as I was sitting in my own darkened state, until the light of Jesus Christ shined into my hearts. And that's what happened. But not only did it happen and it free us from that darkness, but he says we've become his sons. But what does that mean? What does it mean that we were made his children? I was watching, and I don't even want to confess this, but I was watching on the Hallmark Channel. Some guys would beat me up for watching the Hallmark Channel. You've got to do it around Christmas just to watch one of the shows. And I was watching it, and uh, there was this uh, boy and girl <clears throat> who a couple weeks before Christmas lost their mother and father. And it's a tearjerker. And I will confess, there were tears coming down my eyes and saying, Oh, please, someone adopt them. Please. And I was yelling at them, Amanda and I will adopt you. They're cute little kids, boy and girl. 
said, Amanda wants a daughter. She's being blown out with all the masculinity in our house, so we need a daughter. So I'll take you, little kids. I'll take you. I love you. I'm going to get beat up after church, right, David? You can't be that open these days as a man, right? So there are these two, <laughs> there are these two kids. They had nowhere to go for Christmas. And of course, the Hallmark Channel does a great job. They're going to be moved into foster care. And we learn that these foster people are going to be these terrible people. And they don't care about the kids. And then they find out they're going to split the kids up anyway. Until a, an older couple down the street says, we'll take the kids. We'll adopt them. We've never had our own children. But we want to have children. And we want to take them. And of course, there's this great story, tearjerker. They're around a turkey as big as you know, whatever, and they're just sitting there loving each other. And there's, you say, well, what's so, that's a sappy story, Tim. It's pretty pathetic, to be honest with you. But what does that show us? In small way, it shows us what Christ did for us and how God the Father has adopted us. Paul gives three areas that this adoption takes place. First of all, we see that we're given a new father. We're given a new father. Paul uses the phrase in verse 7, Abba, Father. The word Abba comes from the Aramaic word Daddy. It's the significance of the greatest, most intimate way a child can talk to their father. It is the kind of words that I love to hear from my son when he comes up that he's scared or that he's confused about something, running up and saying, Daddy, Daddy, come here, let me just get as close to you as possible. What Paul is saying that when we are a child of God, when we unwrap the gift of Christmas, we can go to the God of the universe and cry out to him, not some old thou holieth goddeth of ithithithith. We can say, Daddy, Daddy, I'm scared, I'm frightened, I'm worried, I'm anxious. Whatever it is, you can go to the God of the universe and say, Daddy, I want to talk with you. That's what Paul says. It speaks of the intimacy that we as Christians have with our Heavenly Father. But he goes on and he says we're given a new family. Three times he uses the word that we are sons. When we trust Christ as our Savior, we join the family of God. You today, if you've walked in as a visitor, you have walked into a group of people that consider themselves the family of God. Not because we've assigned that to our, ourselves and say, all right, what are we going to call ourselves? I guess we'll call ourselves the family of God. No, we take that from Scripture. All those who profess Jesus Christ as their Savior, whether they're here or in Timbuktu, are a part of the family of God. You look around this family and you will see people of all generations. You will see people of all genders. You will see people of all backgrounds, of all ancestry, of all social and economic status. But what binds us together? The gift of Christmas. Jesus Christ as the one who redeemed us, who saved us from our sins, and who allowed us to be adopted by God the Father. We're a part of a new family, but it gives us one other element. We're given a new future. Look at what he says in verse 7. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. I don't want you to close your Bibles yet. I'm almost done here. What an awesome statement that Paul finishes up with. Before we meet Christ, before we unwrap this gift of Christmas, what is, what, who are we? We're slaves. We're slaves in bondage, chained to our sin. But Jesus Christ came at Bethlehem and he was born of a virgin, born under the law that we might be redeemed. All those that are under law. All of us here are under the law. But we went from being slaves, it says, to sons. 
And we know that God is not some just poverty-stricken Father in heaven. But He's a Father that owns all in this world. A Father that owns the universes. And it says because of Christ, there is an inheritance for us. Why? Because when we join into the family, we become heirs to the Father. And the wonderful thing is, is that the greatest gift we are given, we will see when we see Jesus Christ in heaven one day. We will stand before him and he will say, well done, good and faithful servant, and be a part of the inheritance that I have made for you. There's an inheritance waiting for all those who trust Christ as their Savior. What does that inheritance involve? Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 3, and 4, Praise be to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, into an inheritance that can never spoil or fade, that is kept in heaven for you. I want you to bow your heads for a moment. And as I close out this message, I want to ask you the question, I know you've gone shopping. I know that you're preparing food. I know that you've sent the cards out. But the question is, have you unwrapped the gift of Christmas? Have you unwrapped it? I don't want you to think about your wife or to think about your husband or your kids. I want you to ask the question, have I made peace with Jesus Christ? Have I gone to Christ and said, because of your birth in Bethlehem, I have the opportunity now to draw near to you. Because of your death on the cross, I have an opportunity to be redeemed, to be rescued from my sin. If you have not made that uh, profession today, before you leave here, we're going to have people that are up front at the end of the service that would love to share the good news of Jesus Christ with you. Before you leave this place, make that your commitment. Unwrap the gift of Christmas. Don't fall prey to all the things in this world that we say Christmas is about, but fall in love with Jesus, the greatest gift of all. Let me pray. Father God,